0: I did find um, where we were talking about, in the last few episodes, at some point we talked about Richard Baer. I did find where the sheriff, uh, it was like on this old Tumblr account. It was like, I don't know, newspaperarchivestumblr.com. They had kind of copy pasted a very, very old article where the sheriff basically said that, like, I did talk to Richard Bear And he tried to figure out what Dottie Jenkins and uh, Jeff Burgess had told me. And then I had asked him about Sherry Hart's purse and which they found in kind of an odd position, like it had been thrown. So they found her body going like straight down, but her purse was like somebody had thrown it off the same cliff, like at a distance. And when he tried to talk to him, he basically asked for a lawyer and said he wasn't going to talk to him anymore. That's what happened with the, the one interview that Richard Bear gave. And that was March 30th, 1980. And
1: here was the person you mentioned, Dottie Jenkins.
0: Yeah, so Dottie Jenkins, that's Brandy's mom, and Brandy is Richard Bear's daughter.
1: Okay, so they talked to uh, Jeff and then his baby mama.
0: Yeah, pretty much. That's interesting. <laughs> so I'm continuing down this path of like fugitives. For the most part. I've tried to stick with fugitives who never like my fascination is with fugitives who are never found again. Does that make sense? Right. Like it's it's not just like oh I'm hunting fugitives, it's fugitives who like
1: The case has age on it for one thing. Most of them do anyway.
0: Yeah, and and a lot of times they have a little more media that you can read through and the more stuff that you can read through, the more you can sort of gather information but also like reading other people's stories articles blogs podcasts whatever that's how you get ideas for like what else to look at like if they all miss this why don't I go find this court document that nobody talks about that I can see exists and see if there's something in there that like might give me a different direction does that make sense
1: yeah um I agree I I find it really interesting I it, it seems like and I could be wrong I don't look into these types of cases, like, you know, in my spare time or whatever, it's got to be pretty focused on something specific we're doing. But to me, um, the eighties was the time like for, uh, fugitives, right. Uh, people to escape because it it's died off substantially now, unless they have assistance.
0: Yeah, I would, Tend to agree with that, maybe not 100% agree with that. I would say that, in terms of uh, sort of historically, um, I would say that I, I think what you're saying is this escape is much more rare today. And then most of the escapes today are like that Alabama thing that we sort of were going to cover and didn't cover because uh, the woman had. Assisted him, like, and it was a longtime employee who had assisted this fugitive, and she ended up dying. And the um, she, she committed suicide when they were almost caught.
1: Well, it almost takes something like that happening, uh, t- for somebody to be able to get out, right?
0: I think so. Here's how I see it, and it's not that I this is not a disagreement with that statement. I think they're the escapees of today are much more likely to have walked off a work release.
1: And see, to me, like that's not really what I'm, I have in mind, I guess.
0: Are you picturing prison breaks?
1: Yeah, just prison breaks. I feel like that, that, um, because you have to kind of weigh it out. Somebody that's on work release to begin with. Right. That's not like a life in prison inmate. Right. Um, and, and, <laughs> that's uh, it's a completely different thing. Uh, that's why it comes around. For, so I want to say it could just be the most underreporting, underreported thing ever. Right? It's possible people get out all the time and, it, and they just don't cover it for whatever reason. I doubt that, but that's a possibility. It's also not a great look for any sort of correctional facility to lose uh, prisoners that escape. Right? No kidding. Yeah. Um, and so I see where like it wouldn't be advertised. But when uh, it comes down to these like serious like murder cases we talk about where people are um, they're capital murder cases and there's this opinion, there's a possibility that in some states they could get the death penalty. And I've never said like one way or the other, you know, pro or against the death penalty because it's not really relevant. But Part of my thought is that life in prison, which would be uh, somebody who has committed a capital murder, they would be sentenced to it. They're not going to have those opportunities to escape, right? They're not in gonna theory, be, yeah. They're right? not going to be work release, right? That's not happening.
0: Yeah, I, I do. I tend to agree like with what and you're so saying there.
1: Beyond that, it, because it's a security thing, uh, because if – If it were to be that they could easily escape, right, it wouldn't – it certainly wouldn't be the same thing as, uh, you know, the same amount or more punishment being sentenced to life in prison versus the death penalty. These other cases that are less than a capital case, I mean, they – I don't – I don't care.
0: (laughs) Well, I I do sometimes get shocked by, like, the custody classification because, like, there's some – there was one recently it, it's irrelevant case wise because he's like on appeal and I don't want to like talk about it, my name, but this guy is like a long time uh, gang leader of a minor sect of a major gang, um, which doesn't matter. He had a, Uh, a a series of very serious charges. And I pulled him up one day just because I knew his name. And I was like, I'm just wondering what happened to him. Where is he? And he had a medium security classification and he is not a medium security guy at all. He's like, well, was
1: he a murderer?
0: So if I read it correctly, the last thing he went down for was attempted murder, but it was a really violent attempted murder. And a lot of people got hurt. So I, I looked at it and went, that should be a maximum security person.
1: Well, and I don't know what factors uh, contributed to that, but I'm uh, actually very much for, uh, like people who don't have violent crimes, you know, to not be in the prison system, to have other forms of.
0: Uh, yeah, you you whatever. like you like alternative community corrections and other things. I feel can- like
1: if you're stealing stuff or if you're, like, whatever else, drugs, I mean, whatever else you you go to prison for, I think a lot of it's kind of dumb, and um, it could be, uh, it's much more helpful to help people, right? Um, But if you've committed any sort of violent uh, crime, and, you know, there's nothing on the outside of your... If I feel like you went through the system and the system did its thing and you were found guilty, I don't have any sympathy for you if you've committed a violent crime because all you have to do is keep your hands to yourself. If you keep your hands to yourself, you literally cannot hurt anybody.
0: I think that's a good way to look at it. Where where I get fascinated by uh, fugitives, here's what comes in. So researching other things and ruling out like whatever I'm trying to rule out. And it, and it varies could be missing persons cases and it, uh where it frequently falls is like these lesser known serial killers. Um, even a few unidentified serial killers who are identified as probably being the same suspect, either through DNA or some other like pattern recognition could be fingerprints, whatever, but they're not caught and identified yet. They're just known. Um, when I, when I get digging into, you know, patterns and, Sometimes unidentified, either found remains or victims, um, which is actually more common than people realize. That like people are found, and I think there was sort of a golden age for that, where like in the eighties and nineties, uh, there were a lot more people who were never identified. Now, most everybody has some kind of identifiable thing, but it still happens that we have unidentified remains that are found. Where I get into the, like, where the two collide for me is, like, the idea of I can't figure out anything about a set of unidentified remains at a particular place in time. I had the idea years ago to go, okay, well, what if this is a, a fugitive? Like, what if this is a person who escaped from, you know, some radius from here? This is where they were hiding out. And that's why this body is found in a barn. Like, you know, and uh, there's a couple of those body and barn situations where they find like a whole skeleton in a barn that's been there for a long time. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, how does that happen? And like, so part of it's like a fictional narrative and part of it's like trying to figure out if it's ever happened where you know fugitives escape together and one kills the other or something like that and i end up in this thing that you hate which is like endless possibilities but it's just every once in a while i get fascinated with a fugitive case and that's where i go
1: one of the things about fugitive cases that i do actually um find interesting because they are essentially a type of missing person. I I find uh when they they're known to have committed a crime and like they for whatever reason they're never completely through the adjudication process, right? <laughs> Whether like they don't get arrested or like they they escape from being arrested or whatever happens there, I always find those cases really interesting.
0: Yeah, I those are those are some of the ones that like will fascinate me and send me down rabbit holes I normally wouldn't go down I'll go down this rabbit hole where I'm like you have to wonder like
1: where did this go wrong like right when you have enough information to know they're the culprit but like for whatever reason haven't gone all the way through
0: yeah it's so the case that we're talking about today it has some interesting distinctions about it um a couple of really weird connections to it all but in order to get to that one I have to talk about a different case first. And it's older, which I think like, it's much older than than this particular case. But it has a distinction about it that's very interesting. So the first case is it's more of a blurb in history. And that is the case of Billy Austin Bryant. Have you ever heard of Billy Austin Bryant? I have not. Okay. On August 23rd of 1968, Billy Austin Bryant escaped from the District of Columbia Department of Corrections Reformatory at Lorton, Virginia. He crashed an automobile through a chain link gate in a temporary fence. This was a, he had been working as a mechanic in the, in the automotive shop there. And he was working on this vehicle when this happened. Now in April of 1968, Billy had been served uh, with a He had been sentenced to serve uh, a 18 to 54 years in um, custody on a federal conviction um, in the U.S. District Court of Washington, D.C. for bank robbery and assault. This conviction came from Billy Bryant participating in approximately six Washington, D.C. area bank robberies. And at this time, like in the, the late 60s, bank robbery is a big deal. So on September 9th, 1968, just a couple weeks after he
2: escapes.
0: A federal grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia at Norfolk returns an indictment charging Bryant with violation of Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Section 751. That means he's considered to be an escaped federal prisoner. What that does is it starts a full-on manhunt for him. The FBI begins to investigate him. And this includes interviews with Bryant's family and associates because they have a plan to apprehend him. On January 8th of 1969, the Citizens Bank and Trust Company of Maryland, their Fort Washington branch, was robbed by a man who escaped in a maroon Cadillac. Two of the tellers identified the robber as Billy Austin Bryant. They remembered him as a customer of the bank prior to his conviction for bank robbery in 1968. So the FBI gets notified of this robbery and that Billy Bryant has been identified as the robber. Bryant's wife was known to live in the Southeast Washington DC area in an apartment. So three FBI agents go to the vicinity of her residence and they start looking for this maroon automobile to see if it's, been seen in this area. They're essentially canvassing and sort of staking out the area. They determined that the Cadillac is not in the vicinity. So the agents decided that they were going to advise Bryant's wife of the robbery. This gives them some leeway if Bryant tries to contact her and they can kind of squeeze her with aiding and abetting or harboring a fugitive. As they're going upstairs in her apartment building, They pass Bryant's wife, but they don't realize it. One of the agents knocks on the door of her apartment, and it's partly opened by a man who states that she's not home. The agents identify themselves as being with the FBI, and they ask if they can come in and talk to him. The man states that it's not his apartment, and he's not allowed to invite anyone inside. But at that point, the individual fires a gun point-blank At the three agents And after a quick succession of shots He slams the door Two of the agents were struck And the third fired two shots Into the closing door The third agent, he returns downstairs to his car And he radios for assistance And the two wounded agents Are a gentleman named Edwin Woodruff And a gentleman named Anthony Palmasano. They're rushed to a nearby ambulance Where they're both pronounced dead on arrival now, Special Agent Palmisarno was born on November 3rd, 1942, in Newark, New Jersey. He got his BS in business from the university uh, in Newark. On June 27, 1960, he started working for the FBI, and he started out doing clerical duties, and then was appointed to Special Agent um, in July of 1967. He had been assigned to the Charlotte field office in North Carolina before he was transferred to Washington, D.C., Special Agent Woodruff was born January 22nd in 1941 in Brooklyn, New York. He graduated from New York uh, University with a BS in accounting. And before his appointment as an FBI agent in May of 1967, he had served as a police cadet in a clerical capacity and as a criminal investigator for the U.S. Treasury Department in New York. He had been assigned to the Cleveland FBI office before being transferred to Washington, D.C., so in a matter of minutes after the shooting, the apartment house is surrounded by D.C. police and the FBI show up. They fired tear gas into the apartment and then upon entry, it was determined that the individual had made his escape down a tree adjoining the rear of the apartment near a bedroom window. The surviving agent identified a photograph of Billy Austin Bryant as the individual who had fatally wounded the two agents that were with him. And an intensive search starts in the surrounding area by the FBI, the Maryland state police, the Prince George's County uh, police and the sheriff's office and the DC Metro police department. So they have hundreds of people looking for this guy. They have helicopters, they have dogs, they set up massive roadblocks because this is really serious. Two FBI agents just died. So on January 8th, 1969, 1969, Warrants are issued, charging Billy Bryant with robbing the Citizens Bank and Trust Company of Maryland, and with the murder of the two FBI agents. So, January eighth, nineteen sixty nine, this happens. What do you think hap- What do you think happens with Bryant?
1: They put him on the fugitive list.
0: So he goes on the ten most wanted fugitives list, and straight to the top. He just killed two FBI agents. At approximately 6.50 p.m. on January 8th of 1969, a call was received at the D.C. Metro Police Department from an alert citizen in an apartment house on Mississippi Avenue Southeast. This citizen reports that he heard noises in the attic above his apartment. He heard about the FBI agents being shot, and this is in the immediate vicinity of where Bryant's wife's apartment was. So the citizen is suspicious of the noises. A a detective from the robbery squad of DC Metro responds to the call. He announces his identity and a voice responds from the attic identifying himself as Billy Bryant. Bryant stated that he had climbed into the attic to get away, but the door had jammed and trapped him. So he's placed under arrest and he's taken to homicide at the Metro Police Department. He signs a full statement admitting to the shooting of the FBI agents, but he stated that It was in self-defense. His time at the top of the 10 most wanted list was less than two hours. He's positively identified. um, About March something, 1969, he's indicted by a federal uh, grand jury. March 5th, 1969, Bryant is indicted by a federal grand jury. He's charged with first-degree murder. Um, He ends up being convicted on April 10th, 1969, of being an escaped federal prisoner. And he gets three years in custody for that. This sentence is stacked upon expiration of his current confinement. And then he ends up on April 14th, 1969, convicted of the robbery. And he gets 20 years to run consecutively to any time that he receives on the federal charges. And then on October 27, 1969, he's found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. This is of the two FBI agents. And during his trial, an expert from the FBI lab testifies that bullets removed from the bodies of special agents Palmasano and Woodruff, as well as a bullet removed from a door opposite the apartment had been fired from Bryant's revolver. Three other bullets removed from agent Palmasano, a door molding on the floor were found to have been fired from a revolver with the same characteristics. And there were gunpowder residue on the dead agent's coats. So he gets two consecutive life sentences. And these sentences were imposed with no parole to be served at the end of the 18 to 54 year sentence that he was supposed to be already serving and on top of everything else. How he fits into this is because he's the shortest time ever on the most wanted list.
1: Huh? That's really.
0: So that's how we have Bryant in the mix here. He's not our case for today. Well, He is just the shortest time ever on the top of the most wanted list.
1: uh, Which is really interesting. Um, I find it interesting that, so it is a big deal when a couple of FBI agents get killed. Right. And uh, because we're, you know, briefly talking about him as being so short on the most wanted list uh, because everybody responded, right? Like immediately, I assume, because the FBI agents had been killed, right? Oh, yeah. And so I was just curious. Do you think that it was odd because you stated that when they went to the door, like he told them, uh, this isn't my apartment, and I'm not allowed to have anybody in, right? And then I assume he was going to like shut the door, but and then he, he shot them, right? Correct. Do you think there was any sort of like bullying that occurred there?
0: With three FBI agents standing at a door wanting to get in? Mm hmm. Bullying from them? Right. Yeah.
1: Right. And, and, they
0: wanted in, and they probably knew it was him the minute they heard the voice and saw the face.
1: Correct. But the the problem is <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's – and I don't want to shame the FBI agents, okay? That's not what I'm getting at. It's just that guy's got to come out of there eventually, right? Correct. Okay. And uh, if they hadn't have uh, – because it, unless they've got a search warrant, right – which this is the 60s. I don't know. I mean, I can't remember how the laws have evolved.
0: They're, they're just there to tell her that her husband is close know That is all they're I doing. I know
1: that they don't have a search warrant to go in that place. And I don't know that they could be 100% sure it was him. Maybe they could have been, right? But the line is at the door, right? And if yeah. And so in theory they should have made a different plan to, you know, go along with the uh, Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution and perhaps not get shot. But uh, that's not what happened. But that's immediately what I thought was, like, if somebody had made a different decision there, those men would still be alive. And that's part of the reason why, like, being on a lower rung of law enforcement is kind of scary because you have to follow orders, right? And like, you could be doing something really stupid, like, you know, trying to get into somebody's apartment, but uh, because the two men were killed, the two FBI agents were killed. This guy, you know, he was like immediately apprehended, even though uh, they had put him on the, or because they had put him on the most wanted list.
0: Yeah. Three guys at the door. uh, um, They are Ed Woodruff who had two kids and then, uh, Palmasano. I'm not sure if he had kids or not. Like, I, I've read a little bit about the others, um, but the third guy at the door was uh, Charles Harvey. That was uh, he tried to revive the other two agents uh, when this happened. What was interesting is there was a this was a mixed great mixed race group of FBI agents too. He
1: tried to that revive was unusual.
0: Them? Yeah, he tried he tried to revive them. He wasn't Charles concerned Harvey
1: concerned about getting shot?
0: He pulled them away. Oh, I see. He went to he went to the cars. I did read that they said they didn't know what he looked like and that's why they were talking to this guy.
1: So they had no idea. But the guy got jumpy okay. about it.
0: There was this article on the Fordham University had an article up and then the FBI website had an article up and they both said that um at the time, first of all, there were not that many black FBI agents, and the fact that Woodruff was black was interesting. So he gets talked about a lot in terms of the history of the FBI, and this guy, Robert Quigley, talks about him, and he says they, there, was, there was no way they could have known who it was at the door. Uh, there was no way the agents could
1: have known
0: yeah, there was no like they hadn't seen pictures of him yet because it had just happened like all at one time.
1: So, uh, so what do you what do you think that implies? Like that they weren't trying to pick I, it in.
0: I think no. I think that they were being a jerk to whoever was at the door because they didn't believe him that the wife wasn't in there or whatever. I think they really wanted to tell her because they were. I think they were a hundred percent sure that that he was going to go see his wife. Right. I think they knew that.
1: Ha- and and uh, they were right because he was there. <laughs> I'm just saying, but I, I'm just also saying that I've, I, you know, I've reviewed cases, uh, more recent cases where you know somebody ends up getting killed in one of these confrontations at somebody's door or making an entrance into a residence, and I you know, I always think to myself, was that really worth it? This, he was going for a bank robbery and he hadn't hurt anybody up to that point. Right. He had not. Okay. And so, yeah, I get it. Uh, Bank robbery is a big thing, especially in the sixties or whatever. It's not really a big thing now, but um, it happens all the time. Right. (laughs) Anyway, I, I just, I feel like this could have been handled differently and, He still would have been brought to justice, right? And these FBI agents wouldn't have died. But that's just me knowing everything and looking back
0: on it. So from the shortest time on the FBI's most wanted list, you probably know where I'm going with this, right?
1: I would imagine we're going to find out who's been on it the longest.
0: Yes. The longest fugitive on the FBI's most wanted list. It's actually changed hands, believe it or not. Donald Webb, who comes up elsewhere. I was
1: gonna say, wasn't he held, that guy the longest
0: one? <laughs> he he held the record for a while, but we've definitely sort of moved into a, a new era time wise, era time wise with this gentleman. This is a pretty cool case, and I definitely wanted to talk about him over the Christmas episode. Now, I'll just go ahead and say up front, there's not a lot known about how all of this went down. This gentleman was the 386th fugitive to be placed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitive list. So, Never
1: been number one, right? Huh?
0: Never
1: been number one, right?
0: No, he's not wanted for murder. So he he's not ever going to be the guy that like slides up to the top of the list, right. I don't think. Uh, and they don't order them as much anymore. Now it's just that the roving top 10 is all bad. There's not a whole lot that we know about this case, but this is definitely the guy who spent the longest amount of time at 32 years on the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitives list before he was removed in December of 2016. Victor Manuel Jarena, he was born June 24th of 1958. And on September 12th, 1983, Jarina dropped off his girlfriend at Hartford City Hall. And she goes to get a marriage license for the couple. Victor is then going to work and he's going to spend the rest of the day with his co-workers. A guy named James McKeon and a guy named Timothy Gerard. At some point in the day, Victor takes McKeon's gun. He then handcuffs and he ties up his two co-workers and he injects them with aspirin in water because apparently he thought that would disable them. He thought it would make them sleepy. But in case you're wondering, that is not a thing. That does not actually work at all. Once he had done this, he puts seven million dollars in the trunk of his car and drives away.
1: Think about how disappointed his partner was his his coworker was
0: so he gets um by the way, seven million dollars to that money in nineteen eighty three versus today it would be twenty one million dollars today.
1: Well, not if you just put it in bags under your bed,
0: no. It's the equivalent of $21 million today. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? In order to do what he did, yes, you have to steal $21 million for it to be worth $7 million back then.
1: However, if you took the exact $7 million that he had and you put it under your bed, and now that it's 2022, you got it out, it would still only be $7 million.
0: Correct. He gets a flyer. According to this flyer and other published reports, uh, Victor gets a ride to Mexico, and then he gets on a Cubana de Aviación jet at the Mexico City International Airport in Mexico City, and he arrives at the Jose Marti International Airport in Havana. Years later, a cousin of Victor's accompanies a journalist named Edmund Mahoney to to Cuba, and an attempt to locate Victor, but they don't succeed in locating him. Mahoney does publish a story in 2001 that's called Chasing Jarina, which uh, that comes up here as well. The FBI was offering a reward of up to a million dollars for information that led to his capture.
1: Uh, Did he get married?
0: Well, so (laughs) we don't know a lot about what happened. I'm going to kind of like run down pieces of it. Uh, Fox still runs stories on this, and some of the local news outlets still run stories on this. This one comes from Fox News. It was published in November of, of 2014. And the title is, FBI is down to one fugitive and the $7 million Connecticut heist. It says, in Hartford, Connecticut, one by one, and as recently as this week, the suspects in a 1983 heist that netted $7 million for a militant group have been tracked down. All 17 of them, except for the part-time armored guard, accused of playing the central role in what was then the biggest cash robbery in U.S. history. And if Victor Manuel Jarina is in Cuba, as the FBI believes, there's little hope that authorities will catch him anytime soon. He is charged with ambushing fellow guard James McKeon, hog-tying him, and jamming a needle into his neck before loading the money into a rented Buick and driving off from the West Hartford armored car depot. Jorino could have left with twice as much money, but the rest apparently would not fit in the car. Wow! So with a coat smothering his head, McKeon listened as Jorino stuffed the cash into duffel bags. I thought he was going to kill me, McKeon said. All I said was, Vic, and he said, Jim, I've got nothing against you. I'm just tired of working for other people. Jorino has been on the FBI's 10 most wanted list since 1984, longer than any other fugitive. With the arrest of an alleged accomplice Tuesday in 2014 in a Puerto Rican mountain town, Jurena is the only person still at large in the crime he was allegedly rec- recruited for by Los Macheteros, a militant wing of the broader movement for Puerto Rican independence. U.S. authorities say that Jurena is among dozens of American fugitives who have received sanctuary from the communist government. Cuba has long advocated for Puerto Rico's independence from the United States, and some people, including a former Cuban intelligence agent, have claimed the government of Fidel Castro helped finance this Wells Fargo heist. As Savannah and Washington take halting steps towards improved relationships, U.S. authorities hope that there will be an opportunity to arrest Jarena. That's not going to happen now, but there's always a chance to capture fugitives, said Luis Fredicelli. The special agent in charge of FBI operations in Puerto Rico. Los macheteros, whose name is translated as machete wielders or the cane cutters, are suspected of using the stolen money to finance bombings and attacks in their push for independence for the U.S. territory. Most of their violent activities took place in the 1970s and 1980s, including a 1979 attack on a bus carrying U.S. sailors that killed two and wounded 10. A total of 17 people were indicted in Hartford in connection with this robbery, but none played a bigger role than the Macheteros' inside man, Jurena. It's a New York-born college dropout whose mother, Gloria, was an ardent supporter of independence from Puerto Rico. Victor pulled the whole thing off by himself, McKeon said. He was a really good worker and everything, but you never know about a guy. It was the night of September 12, 1983, and McKeon was doing paperwork to close out his shift inside the Wells Fargo Depot when Jarena, then 25, grabbed McKeon's gun and tied him up along with another guard. He injected both with an incapacitating substance, which McKeon later learned from the hospital was a mixture of aspirin and water. There have been bigger cash robberies since in the U.S. In 1997, three netted more than $17 million each including one in Los Angeles in which $18.9 million was stolen. McKeon, who is now 52, said that police interrogated him for two days following the robbery. The depot later closed, and McKeon blames Victor for his loss of a good-paying manager's job. When Victor robbed me, I went back to driving a truck and cooking, said McKeon, who lives in Suffolk, Connecticut and works as a cook at a restaurant. The West Hartford police chief, who was a young sergeant in the wealthy Hartford suburb at the time of the robbery, said that he has followed the case closely, even though it's in the hands of federal authorities. Since Victor has not surfaced with any public remarks, he said it's impossible to know whether Victor was motivated more by ideology or for profit. A former Cuban intelligence agent who defected to Europe in the 1990s, Jorge Massetti, he wrote in a book and testified to U.S. authorities, that the Cuban government provided $50,000 in seed money for the robbery. He said the loot was smuggled across the border to Mexico in a recreational vehicle, and that he was involved in shipping some of the $7 million haul from the Cuban embassy in Mexico City to Havana. Cuban officials have dismissed his account. Since last year, Victor has been on the FBI's most wanted list longer than anyone in its history. Donald Eugene Webb who allegedly killed the police chief of Saxonboro, Pennsylvania in 1980, was taken off the list in 2007 after more than 25 years and 10 months because many believed he was already dead. Philip Peters, a Cuba analyst at the the Arlington, Virginia-based Lexington Institute think tank, said the U.S. State Department has protested the presence of some of its most wanted fugitives in Cuba. But it's politically awkward because Cuba would like to prosecute some people living in the U.S. There's no evidence of any serious negotiations going on that address the fugitives, he said. The government in Havana did not immediately respond to a request for comment on Victor. The last of the other fugitives in the Wells Fargo heist have been tracked down recently in Puerto Rico. On Tuesday, the FBI arrested Norberto Gonzalez Claudio, 65, who is suspected of helping to smuggle the cash out of the U.S. mainland. On Friday, he was ordered to be extradited to Connecticut to face charges that include bank robbery, transportation of stolen money, and conspiracy. That arrest followed the 2008 capture of Gonzalez's older brother, Avelino, who was sentenced last year to seven years in prison for his role in the heist. In 2005, an FBI shootout at a farmhouse in western Puerto Rico killed Filiberto Ojado Rios a Machachero leader who jumped bond in 1990 while awaiting trial. Fraticelli said the breaks over the last six years have resulted from the persistence of agents and officers assigned to a joint anti-terrorism task force. We made sure to connect the dots, he said. The FBI has long offered a million-dollar reward for information leading to Victor's capture. As long as he remains in Cuba, however, observers say prosecutors are unlikely to completely resolve the case anytime soon. The only way they can get Genera is if all the clutter in our relationship with Cuba gets lifted, said James Bergen, a Connecticut attorney who represented Avelino Gonzalez Claudio. So what do you think of all of that? The Cuban government funding a bank robbery in Connecticut?
1: Uh, well, they got a really good return on that <laughs> investment.
0: Yeah, if they put 50 grand in, they got $7 million out of it and pay everybody um, whatever.
1: I, uh, I, you know, obviously I, I have my own issues with, the financial crimes, right? Now right. he did, yeah, yeah. um, he did disable two people as far as tying them up and whatever he did to them, putting aspirin and water in a syringe and shooting them up. With it. <laughs> I assume that was just for effect, right?
0: I, I don't I, – to scare them? I don't – like, what – like, you're injecting that with them. Like, what What do you think is happening there? What is he thinking it's going to knock him out?
1: Well, I think he told them it was going to make him sleepy. I think he knew nothing was going to happen. He just needed them to take him seriously.
0: It's wild, man. I mean, as, as recently as this year, like, they've – like, the U.S. government has asked Cuba to return him.
1: They're never going to return him. Um, he, you know – so – A couple of things are a little weird uh, to me. For one thing, so he allegedly told his co-worker that he didn't have anything against him. Uh, He just didn't want to work for anybody else, right? Yeah. And uh, he's working for this uh, cartel or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Or maybe he was buying his freedom. I I don't really know. I was really surprised when you said like seventeen people were involved because it sounds like there was just one person involved <laughs> right
0: I, um it sounds I, like- I that's what I'm saying, like I can't well, when you think about that, it's a little weird to think about one person trying to move seven million dollars in a car that like was so much in the car that like they couldn't move anymore,
1: well right, and uh as. This is it is a little crazy because uh, seven million dollars cash. I have no idea what that would look like. Um, Do you?
0: Like from a weight perspective, or like like what do you think? It's probably hundred dollar bills, don't you think?
1: I don't know. I mean, I can sort of imagine. I don't know what a nineteen seventy three Buick Lesabre looked like, but I could probably um, look it up online. And if it was full, so that's how much he had. So you know. I guess you do have to have help, but to me, it seems like he was the one, uh, you know, putting everything sort of on the line there.
0: Well, so I looked it up like briefly, like suitcase wise, and I'm assuming it's not hundred dollar bills, but so if you have $20 bills and maybe some hundreds mixed in, um, it's going to weigh about a thousand pounds and it's going to, it would take up the entire trunk of that car.
1: Right, and so the car was sagging. (laughs)
0: That's (laughs) what I – yeah, that's what I think. But the thing is, like, so if it was $100 bills, $7 million is actually, like, only a couple hundred pounds. So I wasn't 100% sure. But I don't don't know how that packing looks. Do you know what I mean? Well,
1: they picked up money from places, and so it would be whatever was being turned in. That's what – armored cars do right yeah Uh, for places that have a lot of cash flow uh they go around and take deposits in for them because it's a safety risk otherwise right because yeah what's all the cash
0: yeah like if it were like if it like say if you averaged it out and said it's ten dollar bills meaning ones fives tens twenties but you average it out to be ten dollar bills then it suddenly weighs eighteen hundred pounds
1: Right, and so there's going to be any sort of mix there, right? I mean, yeah, maybe it could be anything. Just depends on because I think there was like four million dollars there, and then they had picked up three million dollars, right? Yeah. And so the money they're picking up, they have a route that they go along, and the businesses that have heavy cash flows and want to employ employ a um, armored car service, they go on their route and get the money, right? Right. And then there's other things they do too, but um, I just feel like, uh, so they would have been like sort of partners, um, he and his partner that like one drives and one does the other stuff. I don't know if they alternate or what, but I bet he was so disappointed because it is a, like, it's not police, it's not law enforcement, but there is a security element to it, right? Right.
2: Um, right. You
1: you said briefly, like he had to get his his partner's gun away from him, right? Yeah. In order to um, in order to have authority or to be in a position to tell him to lay down and put your hands behind your back, right? Because yeah. up until that point, he had a gun, and so to me, if he had worked alongside of this guy, like I don't know how long he worked there, but I mean, think of how disappointed you would have been. Like, come on, man, really this is what you're doing? <laughs> I would just, I, that's how thats how I like interpreted it. I think it sucks that, um, it, you know, that happened. But I also, uh, I mean, it does need to be a thing that, you know, if you steal $7 million in cash and you scare a couple people, like, yeah, you need to be punished for it. Should he be the longest running person on the FBI's most wanted list? Well, sounds like they, you know, took him off, right? And it, I don't think that uh, that should be our priority. I think that any murderer in the United States uh, under the FBI's jurisdiction, I think any murderer would be better placed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted than anyone who has uh, committed. It, he, it was an armed robbery, but it. To me, it doesn't sound like he had any intention of hurting anybody, right? Yeah. In fact, he planned it to not hurt anybody. Now, the one element about this that does make me perk up and is probably why the FBI left him on there. And, I mean, it it's not I, – I don't completely disagree, right? I disagree with the financial crime element of it, but – uh, I thought I had read that they thought the, some of the money had been used uh, to launch a surface-to-air missile uh, at the FBI headquarters in San Juan, Puerto Rico.
0: Okay, so it's, it's, it, I know.
1: It... So that that I can understand that takes it to a new level, right? As far as, because uh, basically he's financing terrorism, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody got killed in that. That would definitely be like a, a, a terroristic and violent uh, crime, right?
0: What you're talking about, uh, hold on, it's, it's uh, we're laughing because no one got hurt. I'll just go ahead and say that. But Los Macheteros, they did, they took credit For about six weeks after this robbery happened, someone fired a rocket at the federal building in Hattarek. And this is like 7.45 on a Sunday night, so they weren't thinking this through. It was believed that the attackers were aiming at the FBI office there. They missed, and the rocket ended up hitting the U.S. Department of Agriculture suite. Uh, and they def- they they issued like a, a I guess you call it a press release. But they they said that the attack was in retaliation for an October 25th US invasion of this little tiny place down in the Caribbean island uh at Granada. Uh so apparently they were just upset about this thing that had been going on. Now, over time people have been captured from Los Macheteros and they like Kept very good records. Members of the group, like, would detail sort of notes or meeting minutes, if you want to call it that. And when this coup happened in Granada, it spurred a lot of documents. And these documents, uh, they come up in uh, Edmund Mahoney's um, chasing genera and they came up uh, i saw him in the capital gazette and i saw him in the uh the connecticut paper where they're talking about the different things that were going on here it is a very complicated political story believe it or not the aftermath of like the guy drives away with a car full of cash
1: seven right? million dollars yeah yeah
0: what was hunted down from like Uh, Victor's family and like from some really good work by Edmund Mahoney and some of the others who were sort of writing about this in the nineties. So there's enough space between when the robbery happened and that they can follow things, but not so far from it that like everybody's forgotten things. This money went towards a lot of bad people along the way. Like they're paying people to get him uh, across the border into Mexico, and then from there to Cuba. So there was also money that they were putting into essentially a little foreign aid program, like to help other Latin American, I think the word would be insurgencies, but basically rebels or terrorists Uh, in El Salvador, they would get a hundred thousand. One of my favorites was that the Sandinistas in Nicaragua got 50,000. Some of those people that we have heard about getting arrested since then they wrote about him in the 90s now now we hear about them and they're like in jail but they remained in new england during the days immediately after the robbery they get victor and the money out of the country um and it turned out that like it was like it was not hard since everyone was looking for victor in new england no one thought about him being anywhere else so a uh, a couple of the guys that have done accessory time for this they bought a motorhome so they put Victor into this mobile uh motorhomes, like, uh, they put him in the base of the bed in the back of a motorhome. Do you know what I'm talking have – you, have you ever been in a motorhome? I, like I, I have. I, okay. I, I think it was a common thing. I don't, like, ride around in them a lot. But basically they made, like, a false compartment in the back of the motorhome and they put him in there. And they packed cash all around him so he couldn't be seen. So he gets out of Texas at Laredo. And then he gets an escort to Mexico City. And all of the things that sort of unfold from there cost money. Slowly but surely, this money is sort of going away. Um, I did see that somebody got him into Argentina at first. And the, they even reported that he had a, um, uh, a passport to go like legally into Argentina. But uh, so who West Hartford went after was Ana Soto. And Anna Soto is the poor little girl that went upstairs at City Hall to get a a marriage license. Well,
1: did they end up married? No.
0: Ultimately, Victor...
1: that pisses me off because he, like, was living this lie and got her hopes up, like, knowing he was never even going to go back and pick her up.
0: Well, for the time, this was the biggest cash robbery in U.S. history, and well, there,
1: but it I, makes me madder that he was going along with this girl and he's like, go get our marriage license, honey. And then he's like, bye and takes off.
0: Well, all I was going to say was that had to be like an extra like thumb in the eye that like he's all over the paper constantly. And the, West Hartford badgered this woman for a very, very, very long time. You know what they discovered about Anna Soda?
1: She didn't know anything.
0: She did not have, like, they pressured her into cooperating. She said she would cooperate. But the information that she had was absolutely wrong and useless.
1: I have no question she had no idea what was going on. He sent her to get a marriage license that he had no intention of getting married to her.
0: Yeah. It's, That's it's, the kind
1: of guy, that makes him, like, such a jerk.
0: It yeah, this is a like in so many ways, this is a terrible one. But I think ultimately why this guy stays on the most wanted list so long is the FBI. It's very simple. In addition to him taking this money, the FBI is mad at him.
1: Well, right. And so while I have reservations about, um, you know, financial crime, anybody that's committed a non-violent financial crime being on the you know 10 most wanted or whatever um i have reservations about that the fact that like there's additional information because he's never been convicted of this right i mean he just there's just information everywhere that he did it and like this is what happened right and you know it's what we have to go off of but he still hasn't ever been convicted of this so the fact that it was in 1983 and the fact that you know this was um it was a group that wanted Puerto Rico to have independence from the United States. Uh, as far as I know, Puerto Rico is still part of the United States at this point.
0: This did not win Puerto Rico uh, its independence. It was, is that where you're going? A,
1: well, no, well, I'm it's saying a, it's, it's a lost cause.
0: Yeah, like, so it's cons- Puerto Rico is considered to be an unincorporated organized U.S. Commonwealth. It's not a state. But it but is part.
1: It's part a territory of the, US. of the United States. Correct. Okay. And so this happened in 1983, and all this money went to fund like different things that were happening. And yet here we are, right? Still in 2022, Puerto Rico is still part of the United States. It did absolutely nothing. I do understand where um, they wouldn't want money to be going into like. Uh, you know, against the United States, like missiles being shot at FBI buildings or whatever. And so that I can kind of get behind. I still feel like there's a num- any murderer, right, would have been better placed on the list than this dude. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, I feel like the loss of human life overtakes uh, any dollar amount any day of the week.
0: Yeah, uh, I'll I'll say so. If you if you go online and you hunt around for this case, because um, sometimes so I think sometimes people want to know more than like what I'm able to offer up here. Um, I will say that one of the most interesting things uh, I found about this is there's a 1988 uh, emotion that you can find. I think it's just a supplementary motion, but it's the United States versus Gerena. Uh what's interest what was interesting to me about this is I don't know that I've ever read a document with so minty so many parties involved. It's a pretty massive read. It's a cool read. I'm not gonna go into the whole thing here because I think people would be a little bored for it. But ultimately, I think it had 50 lawyers that were a part of it. And it was a defendant's motion to suppress tape recorded evidence for violation of 18 USC. SEC 25188A, which if I remember, I'm going to, I'd have to look it up. That's going to be.
1: What is the name of this case?
0: Uh, it's uh, it's a United States versus Durere where they're like trying all of the people involved in this. They're like, there's this whole thing where no, they not, wire. He's
1: not the defendant, right?
0: He is the defendant.
1: So he's filing a motion?
0: No. This is the United States getting their butt kicked in court.
1: So it's got to be one of the other people that were charged. You said um, it was a defense motion it's for suppression. Every,
0: it's, it's everyone. But in the name of the case. He's got an
1: attorney reference. How does yeah, that work?
0: So, so here, here's how it goes. So <laughs> for the Department of Justice in Hartford, Connecticut, you have – Albert Dabrowski, Cameron E. Van Kirk, John A. Danaher the third, Leonard Boyle. They're all assistant U.S. attorneys. Then you have um, Stanley Twardy Jr. He's the U.S. attorney. And then you have the trial attorneys, David uh, Bovinger and William Corcoran. Like, all of those guys are on the state side. On the other side, you have Juan Acevedo for Norman Ramirez-Talavera. You have James Sultan from Rankin and Sultan for Ivane Melendez Carrion. You have Diane Polan from Levine, Paulin and Curry for Elias Castro-Ramez. It just goes on and on and on and on. I don't see anyone listed on here that is directly representing Victor Manuel Jarena. But what I'm telling you is all the people that are listed here, which it's like it's like 20 people, They are all being charged as if they are co-conspirators of Victor Manuel Gerena. And it's about whether or not it was legal for the the FBI to basically tape everybody because they've run a lot of wiretaps during this case.
1: Well, I would hope. I mean, they had to have warrants to do that. So,
0: Yeah. I will say that they spent way more than $7 million trying to
1: figure out was the evidence suppressed? Is there an order on that? Because I'm going to go with no.
0: It, there's a mixture of what they did. It Well, it turns out that a lot of the evidence was useless anyways.
1: Well, that's what I was thinking because uh, this was a mostly one-man thing happening here as far as the actual taking of the money. I'll have to check that out. I've Something weird is happening because, like, I see the link, but I can't click the link. Oh, I... Hmm. And then on my phone, it's got just a number. And when I hit it, it wants me to know if I want to call that number. So I'm going to go with no. Um, well, sorry about
0: that. I will try and get you a copy of it. And if people are interested in reading it, I'll put it in the show notes because I I think it's interesting. That's really the only reason.
1: Right. And so there is, is there still? Yeah, there is a there is still a million dollar reward being offered. Um, Even though he was taken off the list in 2016, um, the FBI is offering that reward.
0: Yeah, I'm totally curious. Like, I don't have much more on this case. I just thought it would be cool to include it. Do you feel like Victor is alive?
1: Um, uh, Well, maybe. Uh, He seems to be kind of a roll with the punches type of guy. That's the... I imagine that's how he was able to do this, right? Um, because he made friends and like he caught them off guard. And that's, you know, that's how that happened. Uh, what I'm talking about when he took the money initially, right? And so, he, you know, from that side of things, I would say possibly, right? Because he was born in 1958, right? Yeah. So, how old is he? <laughs>
0: He he's not that old. That's the that's what's weird about it. If you look at it just from that perspective, he would be turning sixty five.
1: Okay, and so uh, he that would have been uh, around forty years ago. So he was only twenty five, right? Right, right. Okay, and so you got a twenty five year old, twenty um, five ish, and sixty five ish now. I think that. Um, I don't know if he's alive. I mean, that 65 is where, you know, you could, you could die of old age, like, or of natural causes at 65, right? Yeah. Heart attack or whatever. Okay. However, I feel like if he did that to another woman where he got a marriage license and left her and, you know, she never heard from him again, uh, she probably killed him.
0: Yeah. I, I actually think he's dead. I actually think he was dead probably not long after this operation.
1: The other thing is, like...
0: You're dealing with terrorists.
1: Well, I was going to say, like, how much did he get for all the trouble that he went through? And, like, why not just kill him, right?
0: Well, it's said that he's still in hiding. I read that President Clinton granted some type of amnesty or clemency to quite a few of the people related to this Mm -hmm. and offered it out to Victor as well. I didn't see an exact uh like order or anything where like that was officially offered to victor but i imagine if you don't come forward you're probably either the property of the cuban government in some way or whatever money you show up with when you finally show up at cuba since it's an island and they're going to search ever how you get it in Uh, my guess is that is what you pay for your freedom so if you show up with two million dollars, oh well asylum this month costs two million dollars. So there you go. You're 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 free to live here. That I, sucks yeah, for me. I them. feel like
1: you're probably right. And uh I I just I'm not sure. Um I would like to know, but I feel like, uh it 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 is the most interesting part of that to me is like how he left his life. Now um you did say at the very beginning he was born in the United States, right? I believe you said in Brooklyn, New York, and he was a, um, or maybe not Brooklyn, but New York and he dropped out of college, right? He was a college dropout.
0: Uh, Yeah. He was born in New York, New York. Yeah.
1: Okay. So he was born in New York. So he's a uh, United States citizen and, uh, who knows if he'd ever even been to any of these other countries that he ended up in, right? He gave up his whole life is what I'm getting at here. And it seems to me like uh when the president offered him that would have been in the 90s right if it was clinton. i think it was 98
0: or 99 yeah
1: yeah so because clinton was president from like 92 until 2000 it seems like he would have taken him up on it because or maybe he had just gotten over the fact that he had a new life now right
0: yeah i mean definitely i think that would have been the time to do it I've heard that there's a podcast out there about this. I've never listened to it, or I don't know anything about that. This would be a case that, like, I think would be cool to hear, like, someone, you know, somehow gotten a hold of some of those surveillance tapes and, like, gotten privy to some of the operational stuff that went on.
1: Yeah, I'm not <laughs> – I feel like, you know, um, financial crimes are just – it's a completely different thing to me. You know, if he had hurt somebody, that would be different. But, you know – anybody can put together some sort of scam to steal money. Like you suck, go get a job. Right. Um, that's how I, I feel about it. And you know, the fact that like our resources get wasted trying to track people down.
0: Yeah. You, you can find Victor on Wikipedia. And if you do, and you skip to where there's a little section at the end called a Blanca. And if you click on that, it will take you to, Everything that's been done in this case, like the Wikipedia paragraph version, and you can look at it and just go, "Oh my god, they spent so much money chasing this."
1: Right, and to me, that that's really wasteful. Um, unless, like, every single violent crime in the United States has been solved.
0: And I, yeah, there's no I, hunger, I, and there's I, no. I think there's middle ground between your extreme and their extreme. I think like in the, you know, I think you do spend some time looking for this and like punishing these people. I just think that 30 some years later, it's a little weird that we're still obsessing over no, this. They, they
1: took him off of the most wanted list. I'm, and, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, that they shouldn't be punished, Um, I'm just saying that the priority should always be uh, keeping people safe rather than, uh, you know, retrieving money, recovering money, or punishing someone who's taken money. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is one more fugitive in our list for your Christmas listing.
1: (laughs) He's the longest running.
0: Yeah, so we had the shortest running on this episode, and we had the longest running. Shortest running is, is Billy and his nonsense, and the longest running is Victor. That's, that's – the short and the long of it is – that's what I we I bet
1: think. the name of this episode is going to be Billy and Victor.
0: I think I'm going to call it the short and the long of it.
1: Well, as soon as you said that, I changed gears, uh-huh. but it was coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I couldn't really, I couldn't really, you know, take it back. But yeah, the short and the long of it, that's
0: pretty good. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by Labradicreations.com. You can check them out at Labradicreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at True Crime XS. Or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time.
2: Marguerite is